you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Morning, church. Uh, our Bible reading for today is Revelation chapter 5. Uh, words will be on screen as well. Revelation chapter 5 says this. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth under or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the, for, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, It's a great delight to be back here at City on a Hill. Uh, I first visited this building in the 1960s when it was just St Matthew's Anglican Church and uh, I used to play the organ occasionally, which is still there. And so am I. Uh, Well, no, that's right. Let's begin with one blood human creation. 
Paul, speaking in Athens, says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, literally from one blood, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Notice how Paul makes the point that there is one humanity because we come from one man, as our translations usually put it, or from one blood. We have the same human source of life, whatever our race, nationality, appearance, experience. We are all one because we come from God, and Paul quotes the Greek poet, we are indeed his offspring. So when we look at different human beings, we notice that we are different shapes, aren't we? Some of us are one shape and others are another kind of shape. And some of us have hair and some of us don't have very much hair and some of us are different kind of colours. Though I think it's very funny that we now talk about people of colour as if white people don't have colour. Well, we do, particularly in the summer. We're usually red, actually. That's right. But we have to see other people as God sees them. And how does God see every human being as those who are made of one blood? And this theme of being of one blood is picked up often in the Bible. Just think of Cain and his brother Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel. Then the Lord said to Cain in Genesis 4, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So human beings are so precious to God that he knows when their blood is spilt, when they've been murdered. Listen to this even more striking statement on the same theme from Isaiah chapter 26. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. So the blood of people who are killed, murdered, cries out to God for vengeance. So we have a duty to love the whole human race. John Calvin, the great reformer, wrote, we ought to embrace the whole human race without exception in a single feeling of love. Here there is no distinction between barbarian and Greek, 
worthy and unworthy, friend and enemy, since all should be contemplated or seen in God, not in themselves. And in another place he, he writes of the love of neighbours is essential to our humanity. Since God has stamped his image upon us, and since we share a common nature, this ought to inspire us to provide for one another. And, as you know, the second command is love your neighbour as yourself. So just imagine for a moment if everybody in the world loved their neighbour. No one would be lonely. No one would be hungry. No one would die of thirst. We wouldn't need locks on our houses. We wouldn't need armies. We wouldn't need a police force. We wouldn't have to pay taxes because we'd be so willingly sending money off to the government. We know you need a new hospital. I'll send off some money to the, to the, to the government so it can be built. Wouldn't that be a wonderful world if everyone loved their neighbour? Our newspapers would be empty. And think how far our world is from a world in which we all love our neighbour. We should love others, other human beings, whoever they are, because we are of one blood and all made in God's image. So when I look around this building this morning, I see a number of images of God. There's one in the fourth row, just there. I can see you. Yeah. There's one just there. Oh, 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 there are two over there. No, there are four at the back. No, six over there. Why, the place is crammed with images of God. Because in the Old Testament, you see, God wouldn't allow an image like a statue or a picture because statues and pictures don't move. So he made human beings as his images. And you and I are called to be representatives of God, pictures of God, advertisements for God, reminders of God. What a glorious destiny we have. All these pictures of God. And we are being transformed, aren't we, from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, you and I know that in us the image of God is marred and defaced by sin. But it still remains the fact that we are made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. One blood human creation, but next, one blood human redemption. Listen to these words from Hebrews. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit of himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews chapter 9. So we are made of one blood, that's why we are one human race. As we live in a universe, 
because it's made by the one God. God provides unity for the universe. God provides unity for the human race. And we're also saved, redeemed, rescued from sin by the blood of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his human blood shed on the cross. Or Paul speaks in uh, Acts chapter 20 of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So we're made of one blood, we're saved, redeemed, rescued, purchased by one blood, that is the blood of Christ. And we are made one. We, we have one blood human unity. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2. Before I do, just explain that although God treats all human beings as the same, in the Old Testament he chose a particular people, the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, to be his own people, to be a light to all the other nations, a light to the Gentiles. And the sign that they were God's people was that they were circumcised, the males were circumcised. So then they called those who weren't Jews the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, the ordinary nations. But what God separated in the Old Testament, he brought together in the New Testament by the blood of Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, in the Messiah Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and broken down on his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility between us. So he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So what God had separated in the Old Testament, he brings together in the New. How? By the blood of Christ. Well, I hope you know that it's by the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, that you can be one with God. You can be reconciled to God by Jesus' death on the cross. Not by anything you do, but by what Jesus did in shedding his blood on the cross. But Jesus on the cross not only achieved our unity with God, he also achieved our unity with each other in the church. God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the temple of God's Holy Spirit, has a blood-bought unity. What binds us together is not that we have similar ideas or similar backgrounds or similar appearances or similar experiences, no, something far more powerful binds us together as God's people, that is the blood of Christ. And one of the privileges I've had uh, traveling uh, around the world, 
uh, to speak at conferences and so on, is to, to meet fellow believers and realise that we have everything in common. I remember going to a, a church in uh, Sri Lanka. I was about to speak at a conference. Uh, I didn't understand the language. It was, it, it was a very charismatic church, uh, so I didn't understand everything that was happening, but I knew that these were my brothers and sisters. We were one in Christ Jesus, made one by the blood of Christ. We didn't know each other, but we were one in Christ Jesus. So one blood human creation, one blood human redemption, one blood human unity. And that's the background, the basis for these wonderful words from Revelation chapter 5 that we heard just a moment ago. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. What an extraordinary vision that was to see a slain lamb standing. My brother John had a, uh, had a farm and he used to, uh, he had sheep uh, and at lambing season we'd go up to help I don't think we were a great deal of help, but anyway, what help meant was going out in the middle of the night, to a, it was always wet, I remember, to a muddy field, looking for lost lambs, which you'd pick up the lamb, uh, and uh, you'd take it around to the mothers, the ewes, and say, hey, you, you, hey, you, you, uh, is this your lamb? And the, 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 the ewe would go... No, I don't think so. Try next door. That's right. And you hoped you'd uh, reunite lambs with their lost lambs with their mothers. But of course, some little lambs didn't make it. They died, and nothing looks as dead as a dead lamb in a wet field. But John's vision was of a slain lamb standing. Isn't that extraordinary? He didn't see a vision of Jesus in, because Jesus looks like a human being, not like a slain lamb standing. But the vision was to convey who, who he was, the lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world. And this slain lamb is now standing and the, pra the praise of this lamb is you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God for every tribe and language and people and nation and made them a kingdom and priest to our God. Do you know the largest multinational, multi-ethnic, multilingual group of people in the world is the Church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that extraordinary? It's lasted for 2,000 years. The largest multinational, multi-ethnic, multilingual group of people in the world is the Church, the Christian Church of Jesus Christ. 
And why does it exist? You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Well, that's the biblical vision of humanity. But as we know from our evening news, the reality on the ground is very different, isn't it? And the, human, uh, the evening news is the one point at which they say good evening and then tell you why it isn't for the next 30 minutes, including the weather usually. And let's think about Australia in terms of this one humanity. Since the Europeans arrived, Australia has been a very racist society. The first act of vicious racism was to expel the indigenous people from their lands. So there were pitched battles by government troops at Richmond in 1795, Parramatta 1797, Bathurst in 1824. And what government troops didn't do, local landowners did. It was, as Lawrence Threckold of the London Missionary Society wrote in 1837, a war of extermination. And that war continued. I met a Presbyterian minister recently who was brought up in the Riverina. He remembers sitting on, his, on the veranda of his father's home and hearing an older man saying, well, of course, we used to go out on a Sunday afternoon and shoot blacks. Well, God's commandments are clear, aren't they? You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. But we Europeans, Europeans coveted space for a penal colony, for new lands and great wealth. We coveted, we desired it, so we stole, and we stole, and so we murdered. We read in the law, cursed be anyone who moves a neighbor's boundary marker. We not only moved the boundary markers, moved them, we removed them and stole the land. This land included. One indigenous man said back in the 19th century, how could this white man come onto our land and start pushing us around? Or as a Christian commented in 1923 in the language of the time, the white men took the best of the land for their sheep and cattle, killing the black men's food. The blacks tried to drive these settlers out of their country, but the white men were not to be driven back. They armed themselves and made open war upon these poor blacks. As we look back over these years, that's much we have to be ashamed of. 
But racism in Australia was not uh, just against Indigenous people, it was also against the Chi Chinese people. So during the Victorian gold rush of the 1850s, which some of you will remember as I do, the, uh, the Buckland Valley near Beechworth was home to 6,000 miners. Of these, 2,000 were Chinese miners looking for gold. And on the 4th of July, 1857, the European miners turned on the Chinese community and drove them out of the gold field. The Chinese had been taxed heavily when they arrived by ship, but on this gold field, as in many others in New South Wales and Victoria, a band of miners set upon the Chinese settlements, destroying stories and st uh, stores and shanties, and the Chinese fled, leaving a trail of possessions strewn through, strewn through the bush. The precise number of Chinese fatalities is not known in this particular occasion, 4th of July 1857, but on that day the white miners drove an estimated 2,500 2, Chinese out of the valley. Injustice is the child of greed, and injustice uses racism, racism when necessary. And racism was institutionalised in Australia in 1901 with the Immigration Restriction Act, which epitomised the spirit of the white Australia policy and its hypocrisy. The Immigration Restriction Act, which was aimed at uh, keeping uh, Chinese and Pacific Islanders out of Australia, uh, was part of the white Australia policy, though in fact Australia wasn't white, it was white and black at the time. But this, this uh, Immigration Restriction Act didn't mention the words white or race, but it was actually a tool of racial exclusion. And the most infamous feature of the act was the dictation test. So anybody who arrived in Australia could be asked to write 50 words in any European language. And if they couldn't, they could be kept out of the country. Well, that's a clever one, isn't it? Even if they speak English, you say, write down 50 words in German. Indeed, one European arrived and they wanted to keep him out, so they said to him, uh, write down the Lord's Prayer in Scottish Gaelic. Now, very few Australians could do that, but the purpose of it was to keep undesirable people out to preserve a white Australia. Does that sound shocking to you? I hope it does. Imagine on the last day when we Australians come before God. What did you achieve? Well, we tried to keep Australia white. Some people are theoretical racists. 
that was very popular in the 19th century, the idea was that the European civilization was a superior civilization and the local civilization was an inferior civilization. And uh, if you believe Darwin's theory of the survival of the fittest, then the superior should win and the inferior should lose. In fact, one theory was that if we educated black people, their skin would change to become white. And one of the scandals of Australia was that uh, for, 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 for so long, education was in English. So if you, English wasn't your, if, if an indigenous person, English wasn't your native language, you had to go to school and sit there and hear English spoken and try to learn. So sometimes racism is an intellectual conviction. Most, for most of the time, I think, it's an unconscious bias, unconscious exclusion. And it's only one example of unconscious exclusion. I remember when I was a minister at St. Jude's, uh, we were singing a song one day, and the man next to me wasn't singing. So I said, oh, you just look up at the screen there, and you can see the words. He said, I can't read. And I realized how much of church life assumes that people can read. But does that mean that people who can't read are not welcome? Or one day somebody said to me, there's a woman at the back of the church crying, and she said, I know you're not meant to cry in church. I said, I often cry in church. If you had a church like mine, you'd be in tears too, dear. No, I didn't say that, actually. <laughs> I didn't say that. But she had the idea that getting emotional in church was not acceptable. So it's good to ask, isn't it, what is acceptable behaviour in this church? And who are the acceptable people? And what behaviour is unacceptable? And who would not feel welcome? That's a great question for a church to ask. Not who is here, but who is not here. And a question I think churches should think about is, do we represent the diversity of our community or not? And one of the easiest things to do today is to develop a church of like-minded people. Because like-minded people like being with other like-minded people. But those who aren't like-minded don't feel welcomed. In fact, they feel excluded. So racism is one form of exclusion. And racism, like any other form of exclusion, fights against God's plan that we should recognize that we are of one blood. It fails to obey God's law, love your neighbors, bracket, whoever they are, 
as yourself. And when we express it in our Christian lives and our church life, it contradicts Christ's death, his blood shed to buy us and to make us one. Dear Heavenly Father, please forgive us and our churches for the way, the various ways in which we don't accept people or respect them or love them or care for them. Please help us in our church life and in our national life to stand for inclusion, not exclusion, knowing that we all come from one blood and we're all made in the image of you, our one God. Uh, please give us wisdom as we work through what this means for our church and for our nation. And please show us how to love our neighbour as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.